you have an editor in your head about what decisions you want to make in life, it gets in the way of the flow of creativity, of life energy, of whatever you want to call it, spirituality, inner spirituality. And so for me, as I progressed as an artist, that's always the challenge. Coming up on In Contrast, author and illustrator Aaron Becker. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Aaron Becker is an author and illustrator of children's books. Best known for his wordless books, Becker was a Caldecott honoree in 2014 for Journey, part one of a trilogy of books that also includes Quest and Return. His latest work is a board book entitled You Are Light. Aaron Becker, I am very happy to have you here in In Contrast. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to start by asking you about an essential feature of many, though not all, of your books. And that is that they don't have any words. They are driven by the actual images. I was thinking to myself, are these silent books because they don't have words? They're a little bit different because they require the involvement and engagement of the reader. So when you open a wordless book, it's not just being told to you. You have to sort of decide for yourself when you're ready to turn the page. In fact, if I ever try and add words to the stories I'm working on, one of the things I don't like about the words is the pacing that they require. They basically, when you finish a sentence, we're taught to turn the page. But with a wordless form, it's just an image. And so you can dwell on it for a while and decide for yourself when you're ready to move on with the story. Is there a long tradition of wordless books? And if there is, is that tradition exclusive to children's books? No, I don't think so, especially more recently. But I think it's important to realize that most images in and of themselves are wordless. So we have learned in the last 100, 200 years to live with these things and decode them. And it's a part of our life that we don't think about much. But we do interact with images all the time. And I think as an author working in this medium, I'm taking advantage of that knowledge of our experiences and trying to weave something out of that unexpectedly. When you take away words, if you think about what a word is, it's really a symbol for something else that we all agree upon. And it's the most common symbol that humans use to communicate. So if I take away that symbol, what are we left with? And so then it gives me a sort of avenue into talking about visual literacy, the importance of understanding images, being able to decode images. We're certainly not living in the most literate of ages right now, mm. um, one could say. And so for a child to, or even an adult to understand images and the power of them really gives quite a bit of power back. Are you literally talking about taking the words out, meaning that at any point in the process the words were in? To some extent, certainly in my head, what happened with the genesis of the first book that I worked on was that I never intended for it to be wordless. I loved picture books as a child and as a young adult. I thought they were an interesting art form. I wanted to do one, and I went about doing it the way I knew how. I had a film background, so I thought cinematically. I storyboarded out a story. I went back to add the words. 
And as I'm adding the words, I realize that it was a bit redundant. In fact, not just redundant, but dull compared to the images and the feeling of being able to move through these images organically without being told what to think. They took on a life of their own, whereas the words suddenly limited that possibility. Could you imagine doing a book that has no words even in a title? Is a title essential for a book? A book would not be without pages, without covers, a story without the right, title? Right. Jerry Pinckney, who's a well-known author and illustrator, did a book once on the Aesop fable of The Lion and the Mouse. And although it's called The Lion and the Mouse, the cover of the book doesn't have the title. And I thought that that was just genius. It's almost like the Beatles' White Album or something. And I think if I could get away with it, <laughs> I would. And would you still call those that are on the other side of the page, not on the one that you're creating, but the ones that are observing, are they readers? Probably not. And I think it's a vestige of our habit of thinking of books as being something that are read. We need to come up with a new word in English for like a turner of pages. So what are the challenges of ending up with a book that has no words? You have explained it beautifully. The reader doesn't have to linger on those words. But we are so used to telling stories, to delivering stories in some sort of verbal narrative that when we see the beautiful books that you produce, do you imagine that the reader imagines the exchanges that the characters have? Is there music in the background in your head as you are drawing this glorious illustrations? Or is it really a world where even in the creative process is without words, is without sound? Hmm. That's a great question. I think it probably is a bit soundless for me. When I do write, I find that dialogue comes naturally to me as a writer, but I don't actually imagine dialogue in these books. It's much more visceral and emotional at its core. I think images have an immediacy that words can have, but often if you think about a page, for instance, you can't look at a page of text and feel something in an instant. You can look at maybe one word or a pair of words But a page of text isn't going to give you an immediate visceral feeling. An image does. Any image will give you an immediate feeling, unless it's a collage of way too much stuff. As long as an artist has done their job or an illustrator has done their job, they're going to communicate almost instantaneously with their audience. And so I think that's why I'm leaving dialogue out in my head just naturally, or I'm leaving out a kind of a narration Because even a narration is kind of killing that immediacy, where you just look at something and you start to decode it. Maybe you do slow down and you start to look for details. But either way, there is a moment when you turn that page. In fact, in a book, only structure that I have in these books is the page turn. So there are, in a standard picture book, there's 40 pages. It's about, what, 20 page turns. You have 20 moments to surprise the reader, and that's it. And you've got to use those very carefully and very purposefully if you're going to try and tell a story. One more thought about language before we move to the issue or the topic of journeys and searches and goings and returnings. There is, of course, the fact that language ties us to a particular culture, English or Spanish or French or Japanese. And by not having any language, meaning any words that are tied to any of these cultures, your books become more borderless and universal because they can travel in an easier way. 
Is that true? It's true culturally. Within one country or within many countries, a journey's been translated any number of times, and translated just means the title's different. And in fact, even in the title, you get differences culturally. So there's two versions, I think, in Spanish, one for European Spanish and one for the Americas. And in Spain, it's imagina, and I think in the Americas, it's jornada. And those two words have very different meanings, but probably in each culture, they carry different meanings. So the same language, one word's going to be translated differently. So you get past the title, you're left with no language. It does become universal. So you have the cultural walls get knocked down right away. There are versions where you read right to left. I think in Farsi, it was translated that way. But for the most part, it stays the same. And it is... It's amazing that that's something. Of course, I hadn't thought about this ahead of time. It came out that way. And then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, right. These can be used not just with different cultures, but also like different aptitudes for language, bilingual families, kids who have difficulty processing words, but also maybe emotional difficulties. There's something that slows that child down or gives them an access to a story that they might not otherwise have. And imagina means imagine. And was it the word? Uh, jornada. jornada means like a, trip. a day's work or it right. could be a, a trip or a journey itself. But it's so interesting that within the same language, Spanish, in this case, the translation would be so different depending on who's producing it or where it is located. I want to stop for a second in that concept that you just gave, that in Farsi, you believe, it goes in the opposite direction. Does that mean that you have to reimagine the book for them, that the sequence of the images has to be inverted and you have to give them that material, the publishers take care of all that. No, that's all done behind the scenes and I just get to see the final product. Although another cultural difference was that the girl in the story wears shorts and this was not okay. So they had to get permission from me to extend the length of her shorts to be kind of like pants. Dress? Yeah, or pants. pants, yeah. And you gave permission? Yeah, I said that's okay. And they did the drawing of the longer pants themselves, so, or yeah. did you have to do it yourself? No, I didn't. I think things like this, often, for instance, in a picture book, there's often a moment where there's some kind of text. And when it gets translated, it's an actual picture. It's not a typed face. And an artist at that publisher house will have to manipulate it and do it themselves. So they're kind of used to that process, mm. I think. The journey, the quest, the odyssey is something that is at the core of at least the trilogy. Is each of these books in and of itself a journey and a quest in the way they come together, Aaron? You mean as each individual story yes. has their own arc? Yeah. For sure. And then they have to work together as one larger arc. There's a literal journey in each story, right? So you have like the external story. But like all good heroes' journeys, the real story is the inner journey. And as I started out this first book, which is called Journey, it really is much more of an external story. Because as young children, that's kind of how we start out. We're taking in the world outside of us. We're trying to analyze it. Our imagination and the real world sort of exist in the same sphere. And then as the books progress, that journey becomes deeper and deeper. So in the second book, Quest, it's more of the adolescent's journey of like being more engaged. Suddenly the stakes are raised. Who am I going to be? Am I going to step up to the plate or am I going to be a bystander? And now the lines between imagination and the real world are a little bit more clear and therefore more difficult to navigate, ironically. And then in return, the final story, it's really the inner journey of becoming an adult and the gray areas that 
ensue. Did you imagine them as a trilogy from the start, or did that evolve after mm. Journey received so much attention and the Caldecott? Right, and- right. No, uh, you know, books take a long time to produce, especially with pictures, because there's a long process. And uh, by the time Journey was published, I'd already finished the artwork for the second story. In that sense, it was sort of understood that this was going to be a larger story. That said, when I wrote Journey, I didn't imagine it to be more than the story I was telling at that time. It's about a girl who's a bit bored and lonely but has an active imagination. And at the beginning of the story, she's trying to get attention from her family. Now, she goes on an adventure, and she kind of goes into this Narnia-like land or an Oz-like land. She creates her own reality, really, much like a child would. And in doing so, she makes a friend and kind of finds something that she's looking for. But I thought when I was finished the story and even when I was working on it, I really wanted to figure out what's going on with the family. You know, what about that deeper yearning that we have of wanting connection with those that are caregivers? And so then I was like, okay, I've got three books to tell this. How do I pace that out? And so, again, second book, adolescence, third book, journeying towards adulthood, and I bring in her father once again. It becomes a story of not just her getting her ultimate needs met or desires met through a connection with her father, but actually it becomes the redemption of the father as well. It becomes a larger story of adulthood and our relationship to imagination, all in a picture book. Would you abort kid? Is this an autobiographical story in many ways, variations of who you are or who you were and who you became? It absolutely is. That was me. And I often think that those moments of being bored out of my mind in my bedroom and coming up with stories was a pretty instrumental gift in some ways that I received from my parents of not being kind of overbearing parents who wanted to schedule every last minute of my day. So it kind of came back to be useful. And then also now as the father of two young girls, I'm seeing it from the other side of understanding our kids come around to save us in the end by pulling us back into this realm that's harder to access there's a beautiful aspect in the character, and that is that she has this capacity of to draw things that will allow her to escape or to push herself beyond. And it's the contrast of the colors of the landscape with the red, this crayon or chalk that she uses that makes her be herself very much. Whenever I reread them, and again, the word itself doesn't quite capture the experience of entering your books— There is a liberating aspect in this chalk that she has. It's as if the circumstance that surrounds her or in which she is is not going to constrain her because she's going to imagine a way to go beyond it that is so like a child or so like the imagination allows to do. What is the relationship that you had with your child's imagination and how has the relationship with your imagination changed now that you've become an adult and you can draw and you can bring others through your books to journeys and quests and returns like this? Well, first of all, that's such a beautiful way to put it. I've never thought about those moments being expansive. And interestingly enough, when the girl does enter that realm, you'll notice on those pages, everything turns to white. So the world disappears. She becomes totally immersed in her imagination, and it's just her and this drawing implement. And certainly that was the case for me. I had 
a set of markers and pieces of paper that I would get these pages from my father's office where they would all be printed on the back of a dot matrix printer and I'd flip it over so I'd have a blank sheet of paper to <laughs> draw on. And it was like that, like imagine just entering this world where everything disappears and you're in this white space of a blank sheet of paper. Even before you're a grown-up, I would say maybe about fifth grade or so like a 10-year-old, 9-year-old, you become self-aware. And that's a great thing. <laughs> Thank God <laughs> some of us do that. <laughs> but the problem is that in becoming self-aware, you become self-conscious, you become maybe concerned about what's the worth of what's coming out of me naturally of what I want to do. Maybe it's not drawing, maybe it's kicking a soccer ball around or what have you. And you start to edit. So when you have an editor in your head about what decisions you want to make in life, it gets in the way of the flow of creativity, of life energy, of whatever you want to call it, spirituality, inner spirituality. And so for me, as I progressed as an artist, that's always the challenge is to stay in touch with wonder, with playfulness, with the desire to draw, not because I'm trying to have a career or trying to make a living or trying to make an image that's going to be loved by everyone or tell a good story, but just to make an image for the sake of making an image. I don't think I asked big questions when I was a kid as to why I was drawing. And so that is the challenge for all of us. If we're trying to stay in touch with our bliss, so to speak, how do you get rid of that internal editor? And how do you? You say it beautifully, and that is the attempt or the intent to remain in touch with that maybe naive, innocent voice or view that we all had at the very beginning. But it's pretty tough being an adult in that sense. And no matter what we do, we adulter things. We adapt them. And then, of course, you work with an editor who probably tells you, this works, this doesn't work. People are not going to enjoy this. Can you switch this? Is that like working with adults too rigid, too constraining for you? The nice thing about the size of a picture book as an art form is that the stakes are relatively low. Like, let's say a given publisher might put out 200 books in a season. They'll spend a certain amount of money on them, on their advances, on their publication, on their distribution. And they're counting on like two of them to carry their list of 200 books. So as an author, it's complete luck as to which ones kind of pan out. Whereas if you think about something like film or much larger enterprise, there's millions of dollars at stake. And so when those people come in and tell you, hey, you've got to make it this way or that way, having worked in film, I remember everything gets killed. That's why there's so many bad films. The money is really guiding a lot of the creative decisions. So I don't have that concern in picture books. I kind of get to do the books that I want to tell. I can do them the way I want. But to get back to your earlier question of how I hang on to wonder as an adult, I don't think it's something I strategize about. And I think it's something specific to my own life experience in that I think we're all sort of arrested in our development somewhere. Some of us are still in our 20s. Some of us are still toddlers, maybe. <laughs> But for me, I got stuck in this one moment. I was maybe nine, ten years old, and I'm in my bedroom, and I'm playing. I'm make-believe by myself, just like the girl in the book. Just She's bored, so she's coming up with something. And I catch myself speaking out loud. I become aware that I am the narrator. I am the person telling this story. And suddenly, 
as opposed to being able to just run with it and go with it and see where it takes me, I start to realize I'm strategizing about the story I'm telling. I'm aware of where I want it to go. I'm aware of how it's going to end. And it killed it for me. And it was devastating. I actually remember being in the room when this is happening, where I was, what I was playing, where I was sitting, what I was holding. It lodged inside of me. And I think that was a moment of fortune that keeps me aware of that delicate balance. So I was aware, but I was also able to kind of adjust and remember, okay, I'm now aware to this extent. How can I still enjoy what I'm doing? How can I still love story? How can I still want to get lost in this world? And that, I think, is why I tell the stories that I do. You speak very powerfully about boredom, that your character, yourself, at different moments, get bored and figure out a way to get out of themselves. Aaron, have we forgotten how to get bored or have we forgotten the value of boredom? You were talking about parents that over-regiment their children as if any free time would be wasted time because there's nothing to do. And we hear often that complaint, I don't have anything to do, Ma. What am I going to do? As if not having anything to do was a form of prison. But it seems that both in the beautiful story you just told and in the way your character moves, that moment of finding oneself is often about not having any regimen around. I remember moving to Berkeley after college, and my favorite thing to do was to take walks up in the hills where the fancy houses were, <laughs> sort of this beautiful place with trees and kind of another world for me. Having grown up in a city, it was a nice change of pace. And that's where my mind would wander, and that's where I would come up with ideas for things. And it's not just a matter of having parents that are hovering over their kids' schedules, because all you have to do is go to an airport anywhere in the world right now, or a bus or a train, where there are human beings getting from one place to another without someone to talk to. And I guarantee you, 98% of those people will be looking down at a screen, swiping, 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 endlessly looking down that bottomless pit of distraction. And what is that doing to our species? Are we prepared from our DNA to handle that type of nonstop consumption? And I don't think so. I think we're in big trouble. I hope that the work I'm doing gives at least a moment for an adult or a child to slow down, see the value of their own storytelling abilities in something that's not telling them what to think. But beyond what anything that I'm doing, it's a concern of mine. And I do think you're right. We've lost the ability to be bored because we don't need to be bored anymore. You work in animation for some time before turning into the picture books that you make. In what way did that period, did that exercise or that practice shape the way you imagine stories, the way you shape the images, the way you, as you were putting it, suspend in each of this turning of the page what the surprise is going to be on the other side. It's everything for me because I was finishing art school 
sort of late in my 20s, I decided I needed to get back into doing art. And I needed to learn how to draw to the point where I could do what I wanted to do with whatever talent I might have. So I went to art school and didn't know what I was going to do with it other than I thought I should make a picture book. And what happened was I really didn't want to stay at art school once I was there for a while. It was expensive, and the, many of the students were younger than I was. It was in Los Angeles, and it felt a bit vacuous, and I just wanted to get away. And I'm about to leave school. I have maybe a week left of school. And at the time, I was in Pasadena in, in L.A., and the school was at the top of a big hill. And I had a bicycle, and I would ride that bike up from my apartment to the top of the hill. And there was a guy there that day from the school who had graduated, and he was working for Lucasfilm at the time. And I'd seen his presentation earlier that day. I thought it was interesting, but whatever, what have you. I really was lost at that point. And I'm riding my bike up the hill to deliver something at the college, and I see this guy walking out to his car. And I thought, well, who cares? Why not? You only live once. I went up to him, and I said, oh, yeah, I saw your presentation today. That was interesting. And he said, oh, well, what's that bike you have? I had no idea. He turns out he's like a complete bike aficionado. And I had this junky bike that I had kind of stripped all the stickers off. So I think it looked fancier than it was. And we get to talking and he says, oh, you should send me your portfolio. I'm working on a film right now with the art director from Star Wars. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So the next thing I know, I'm up in the Bay Area. I'm <laughs> applying for this job. I knock on the door every week. I go on a bike ride with this guy. <laughs> By the time I'm in shape, I have a job offer. And I was so lucky because I did not know what I was doing. All I had done in art school was draw figures and heads and paint and charcoal. And that was about it. I didn't have a style. I didn't have a portfolio. I didn't know what I was doing. And when I got this job in film... I was surrounded by extremely talented technicians. I mean, Norman Rockwell's level, best of the best, people working for Lucasfilm guys and gals. And from them, I learned. For 10 years, right sitting next to them, I learned to, to understand story. I learned to understand pacing, composition. And most people who see my books say they're cinematic, and it doesn't surprise me in the least. And did you think at any point that that would be your line of work, that you should stay there instead of going to picture books? Oh, absolutely. We had moved to the East Coast from California. I took the work with me. I was working remotely. We had bought a house. We had just had our first daughter. We bought that safety car for the first child. And I come home from the dealership, and I had a phone call from a good friend of mine back home, and he said, hey, have you heard? Disney's shutting down our studio. And I had no idea it was coming. I had no plans. My plan was to ride this wave as long as I could. It was a fun job and enjoyed it. But I'd always wanted to do a picture book. And there it was, these few moments we get in life where we can either seize it or not. And I feel like I actually had no choice in some ways because I either was going to sell the house. The market had just crashed at the time. So I was going to sell the house at a loss move back to California where we couldn't afford a house and get a job at another studio. Or I could take a Hail Mary pass, take everything I'd learned from 10 years of working in film, put it into one project, see what could happen. And that was how Journey was born. 
Beautiful. Your most recent one, I believe, at least in terms of the sprawling storytelling, is A Stone for Sasha, which is similar in that it's also a journey and an exploration of different periods of time, different empires going through falls and regurgitations. But it also feels that it is a new step. Tell me about the gestation of this one. A Stone for Sasha started out as an idea about the folly of mankind. When I was working on Return, the last journey book, we lived in Granada in Spain for the year. And Granada is one of those cities where it's been built upon and built upon and taken over and fallen down over hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years since the Romans. And so I thought, wow, imagine what if you could observe that? What would that story be? So I had drew a story about a tree that watched the rise and fall of some ancient civilization. And that was about it. That's all I had. And I realized it wasn't quite enough. I needed something more. And I realized, well, a tree has to stay still, but what could move from civilization to civilization? What could go on a real journey? As well as the fact that these buildings were made from the same stones, like a church and a mosque and a Roman structure. These stones have been around. They're just reused. And so that was my starting point for that wordless story. It was an ambitious project. It's a bit longer than the other books, but still I managed to squeeze it into a picture book form, a story of a girl who loses her dog and finds some relief in her grief from this other parallel story of human civilizations. We've all experienced something of grief for millennia. When you create these stories... Aaron, I'm not talking here of You Are Light, which has words, it has shapes too, and one sees the colors of the day as they advance. I'm really talking more of the Journey trilogy and of A Stone for Sasha. How old are the kids, do you imagine? Well, you probably have a direct sense. Are these stories for little ones? As the story becomes more of an adult, does it push forward? Do you have a very clear image of who your audience is, who your reader or seer is when you're creating it? Or is that something that depends on how the book is marketed, how the publisher sends it out to a certain circles or audiences? I have a critique group of local illustrators, and one of my friends often asks, well, so what's the age group that you're going for? And I never know how to answer that question. In some ways, I don't think I want to. I'm creating something that I want to create, and I don't think of an audience. And I recently learned, after many failures, that this doesn't work with language. Language is very specific. And I was trying to write a chapter book, and I was writing the story I wanted to write. And at some point, I had to abandon the project because I knew I needed to become specific with who my audience was, who my reader was, what their stage of life was, where they were at. And I think I'm more interested in the human experience and not the child's experience or the adult's or the teenager's experience. I'm interested in what makes us human beings. And I think there's much more that makes us similar between different ages and developmental stages of our life. To me, they're more interesting and more engaging. So anything that I create is always going to be for all ages and can be interpreted, especially without words, can be interpreted any way that the reader wants. 
In that sense, I see many connections with certain Japanese artists, contemporary artists or Renaissance artists who are also drawing or painting or animating for an audience that is the child in adults or the adults, the little adult in a child already that is not as caged as sometimes the marketing strategies of our publishers are, that this has to go to this particular age or audience. Who were your models, your idols in terms of picture books when you were conceiving of this? Who are the inspirations? There's two principal ones, and they're both pretty well known, so it may sound a little cliche, but Maurice Sindak. He also, I think, created from a place of genuine curiosity and fascination and compassion with the human experience. So he's not writing for a child. They come out that way. In Journey, it certainly feels like where the wild things are. It's a child that has to go out and explore the rest of the world. And it can be menacing and it can be threatening. It feels like that influence is filtered in the book. It's beautiful. Thanks. There's a moment in the girl's bedroom that's very similar to Max. Max's bedroom. And so his bedposts are her bedposts. And there were certainly some similarities there with that feeling. It's clear to me that Journey can be read by a much younger reader than, say, A Stone for Sasha. So I think it's naive to say, oh, my books are, are all ages. There is some sense of like, okay, this is a child's journey versus an older child's journey. When I'm doing school visits, the children I like to speak to the most are of that same age that I talked to you about when I was in that bedroom coming to this realization of, oh, I'm the narrator of my own story. It fascinates me, and therefore I'm able to talk to them because I'm still there. I know what it's like for them to be confused about who am I for the first time. You said two, and you talked about Maurice Sendak. Oh, Chris Van Alsberg, who we all know from the Polar Express, but also did a book, a favorite of mine, called A Wreck of the Zephyr, which is about a sailboat that can fly. And he captures wonder and majesty. His books have words, but they don't need them in some ways. And I wonder if he was creating books now or was just getting going in his career. I have a feeling he could have pulled off a mean wordless picture book. <laughs> and maybe it's still in his cards. I don't know. We are coming to the end of our conversation. And I have one more question that I want to ask you. It goes back to that reflection that you were making about the absence of words in your books. I wonder if you feel at any point in the process of creating one of these gorgeous books the need, or maybe you feel that it actually happens, that one of your characters is next to you and talking to you, or that you can talk to them, if you could communicate beyond the pages, would you do it in images, or could you say something? Wow. I wouldn't say anything. I think it's a touch. It's eye contact and a touch and we all want to feel that it's going to be okay. I think that words often fail in that respect. But when we connect with each other in a way that goes beyond words, that's when we find some relief in our hearts. 
gorgeous. It's been a real pleasure and an honor having you here in In Contrast. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Looking at Aaron Becker's wordless books, my mind wandered into what isn't an altogether unrelated terrain. I thought of silent movies. I see films three, four times a week. They are an essential component of my cultural diet. I cannot imagine them without sound, though. Yet a century ago, that's exactly what they were. Soundless narratives on screen. A pianist or another instrumentalist might have accompanied the performance, but that was it. It's astonishing to think how different the experience must have been. Whatever dialogue was uttered, it needed to be inserted in panels that interrupted the plot. I also thought of film dubbing. It isn't done in America, but in parts of Europe, Asia, and Latin America, dubbing is a common practice. Actors like Meryl Streep don't communicate in their native English, but in Spanish, French, Portuguese, or any other language the audience in the theater might use. Of course, Meryl Streep doesn't speak all those languages. For all I know, she might not even speak any of those fluently. Yet I have seen her speaking Italian. And Russian, too. To me, this is magical. It is also incongruous. That we feel the need to dub actors in order to entertain audiences in their original languages is a peculiar experiment. I know that in Italy, every time there's a movie with Tom Cruise the same Italian actor does the voiceover. Otherwise, Italians would feel strange when watching their favorite Hollywood star change voices every time he does another project. It's as if you or I would have a particular voice in January and another in October. In Aaron Becker's books, words are absent. They are silent books. Yet when you read them, well, I'm not so sure the verb to read is correct, you get the sense the world in which the characters exist isn't soundless. On the contrary, it is full of noise, just as a silent movie when being shot was full of noise. Somehow, you get that noise maybe through osmosis. It projects itself into your ears. Now, what would a pictureless picture book be like? Perhaps the equivalent of an imageless film? I can't begin to imagine either of them. Actually, as far as I'm concerned, they aren't only implausible, but impossible. On the next In Contrast. Hampshire isn't intended to be an experiment. It's supposed to be a place where experiments take place. So it's an experimenting college, which means it tries things and if they succeed, people take notice and other places adapt them. Ken Rosenthal, the interim president of Hampshire College, on the next In Contrast. To see illustrations of our In Contrast guests by Burns Maxey, and for previous episodes, including our interviews with Mo Willens, Jared Kroshaka, and Norton Juster, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our production assistants include Emma Schwartz and Ethan Bakuli. 
Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. <laughs>